All right, I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 7. John 7, starting in verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is not the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring them? Bring him. The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. A sense of the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for gathering us together as your people. We thank you for the blessings of your word and of your gospel. Lord, we thank you that you have opened up our eyes, that you have shown us the glories of Christ, that we have received him for who he is. Lord, that we have not been left in our deception, that we have not been left in our lawless ways, that we have not been left under the curse of sin. We thank you, Lord, for this gospel, and we pray that any who have not received it would receive it this morning, that you would use the preaching of your word to convict and to draw to Christ. And we pray for those who do know you here, Lord, all of your people, may they be built up and edified, and in all things, may you be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up again in our series in John, and we come to a section here that is dripping with irony. Uh, John, quite brilliantly and subtly, makes a number of profound points. Now, to set up our text for this morning, we'll just recap briefly. Uh, you may remember at this point in John, Jesus has already had a number of run-ins with the religious authorities. They have, ironically, concluded that he is a lawbreaker. Right, what are the conflicts we've seen? That he is guilty, perhaps, of violating the Sabbath, guilty of blasphemy for calling God his own father. Jesus had been avoiding Judea because he knew that the Jews were there seeking to kill him, but he had now come into Judea to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus had been teaching openly in the temple, which had led some people to wonder why he wasn't being arrested. Now, the crowds were of mixed opinion. Some were wondering if perhaps the reason he was being left alone was because the authorities themselves had concluded that he was, in fact, the Messiah. And some of these murmurings among the people reached the ears of the Pharisees, who then decided it was now time to send out the arrest warrant. Jesus, however, continued teaching and even predicted his death, although he did it in a way that the crowds did not understand. 
We then saw on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, Jesus said, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That brings us to our text for this morning. Let's read together from verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So we see multiple theories circulating in the crowd as to the identity of Jesus. Some suggest that he must be the prophet, while others think he might be the Christ. Now this may be confusing for us, uh, once again, because we have the benefit of hindsight. Uh, We have the blessing of knowing the entire story, and so we are well aware that Jesus is both the prophet like Moses, predicted in Deuteronomy 18, and that he is also the Christ, uh, the Messiah, the promised descendant of David. But as D.A. Carson observes, the Jews at the time of Jesus clearly expected these to be two separate figures. And that is understandable. Uh, Many times, fulfillments and predictions and prophecies such as these are really only clearly visible in hindsight, right, after they have been fulfilled. So it's not really surprising that there would be debate here uh, or that they expected multiple figures. If you consider the vast range of prophecies about who Jesus was, what the Messiah would would come and do, it's not actually surprising that they were expecting multiple figures to arise. Um, And so now there is this debate, right? If they're going to conclude that Jesus is someone sent from God, they're, they're seeing something special in him, they are now trying to figure out, okay, well, who is he? Right? He's somebody special, somebody prophesied. Uh, who is he? Is this the promised prophet? Deuteronomy 18, uh, Moses had said that God would raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers, one who would be unique as Moses was unique, uh, likely referring to the fact that Moses spoke to God face to face. That's what set Moses apart from the other prophets. Um, Deuteronomy 18, 15. And this makes sense that they would make this connection to the prophet here when we remember again that Jesus had just declared that all who thirst would come to him. And Jesus had said this against the backdrop of the water pouring ritual that was part of the Feast of Tabernacles at the time, which you may remember from last week was a ritual that commemorated the provision of water from the rock in the wilderness, uh, which God had given through Moses. So this helps explain then the connection in the people's minds between Jesus and Moses. Uh, We saw a similar discussion taking place after Jesus fed the 5,000, a miracle which called to mind the miraculous provision of manna, which again was during the time of Moses. So you have Jesus doing things and saying things against the backdrop of these Uh, rituals that are commemorating Moses, right? A greater feeding of the people, multiplying uh, bread and fish. Uh, You have now Jesus saying, I will give you water to drink. Now Moses was the one who had given water uh, in uh, in the past. And so the people are wondering, is this perhaps then 
the prophet like Moses. He's doing and saying some things that remind us of Moses. Maybe this is the guy. Uh, But others are saying, well, no, this must be the Christ. This must be the Messiah. Um, And now this might be confusing if you're new to the faith. Uh, Still, when I uh, type in uh, my sermon notes into Google Docs, uh, it does not realize that Christ is a title. It commonly tells me I'm making grammatical errors for using the Christ, the Messiah. Google Docs thinks it's Jesus' last name. Right. Uh, so we, we commonly refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ, that people may not know that this is actually a title. Right? It is the Greek word for Messiah, which means the anointed one. So we can refer to Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that many, many prophecies in the Old Testament were pointing to Jesus. And among those prophecies was the promise given to David that God would establish the throne of one of his descendants forever. Samuel 7, uh, 2 Samuel 7, verse 13. Later prophecies would expand on this promise, uh, giving many more details about what the what this descendant would be and would do. And so by the time of Jesus, messianic expectations were varied. Uh, Different groups, different sects within Judaism had different expectations as to what the Messiah would be and do. We encounter some of these groups uh, through the New Testament, right? We we read of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, uh, and there were pretty significant theological and philosophical differences between these groups, uh, and therefore different messianic expectations. Um, And so all of this makes it difficult to talk about what were the messianic expectations in the first century, right? What were the Jews expecting? Well, that's hard to answer because there were so many different groups who would have not all shared the same opinion. Uh, So the expectations were varied. Um, But this crowd, we see, clearly expected the prophet like Moses to be a different figure from the Messiah. They were expecting two separate individuals. Uh, But some people thought Jesus was the Messiah, but no sooner had that suggestion been raised than another objection is brought forward. Verse 41. Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They say, Jesus can't be the Christ, for the Christ is to come from Bethlehem. For those of us who know the story, we can see the irony here. So John, being the good writer that he is, just lets that irony hang. Now, why is this ironic? Well, kids, where was Jesus born? He was born in Bethlehem. We know the story. We sing about it. Oh, little town of... (laughs) Bethlehem. We sing it at Christmas. And so in an ironic twist in this text, what the crowd viewed as an objection, a reason for why Jesus could not be the Messiah, could not be the Christ, the reader of John's gospel sees it actually to be another strong testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Right? This crowd was actually right on one point. The Messiah was prophesied to be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so the Jews had rightly understood this text to be a prophecy about the birthplace of the Messiah. The crowd was correct in this belief that the Messiah would come, would be born in Bethlehem, but they made a mistake by dismissing Jesus as merely a Galilean. Jesus was raised in Galilee. His family home was Nazareth and likely later Capernaum, but he was not born there. It was because Jesus was born during the year of the census, and Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem in order to register. And so by the time that John would have written his gospel, uh, D.A. Carson asserts that it would have been well known uh, from anybody who had contact with Christians that Jesus was from the Lion of David and was born in Bethlehem. And so we see this as a great use of irony in the text. John presents this objection from the crowds in a way that his readers would actually see to be a testimony to Jesus' messiahship. Verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. There was division, schism. The people were deeply divided in their opinion of him. Some considering him worthy of honor as a prophet, perhaps even as the greatest prophet, the prophet like Moses, the one prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. Others even think he might be the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David. And still others think that can't be the case, since the Messiah is to come from Bethlehem, and as far as they know, Jesus is not from Bethlehem. And then we see still others wanted to arrest him. Now the people were divided. And this continues to be the case today. Wherever Jesus is faithfully preached, the responses will continue to divide people. There, will, there are many in our day who would claim to respect Jesus, uh, some who would consider him to be a great prophet or moral teacher. Others may consider him to be the Christ, but don't really know what that means or what it would require of them. And still others openly reject him, openly hate him, and all who follow him. There are divisions still about who Jesus is. Now, as John states in this gospel, the purpose for which he wrote and recorded the things that Jesus did is so that his readers would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So as we continue to be divided about Christ, know this. What you conclude about Jesus, what you believe about him, and what you then do with that belief is perhaps the most significant question you will ever face. We'll come back to this later. Let's continue on. Verse 43. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him in? Now we are reintroduced now to these officers from verse 32. 
uh, who had been sent by the Pharisees to go and arrest Jesus. Uh, John, again, is a good writer. He, he opened that uh, concept there, brought, brought in these characters, and then we didn't hear from them uh, until now. So after these officers had been sent to Jesus, they would have heard him speaking. They would have heard some of his teaching. Remember again the setting. We are here at the Feast of Tabernacles. There are lots of pilgrims in Jerusalem for this feast uh, surrounding the temple. Jesus had gained many followers. We see the crowds were divided about him. Uh, There's lots of excitement and expectation surrounding him. And these officers were sent to arrest him. But they now return to the Pharisees empty-handed. And the Pharisees ask, Why did you not bring him in? Why didn't you do what you were told? Their answer is fascinating. Especially when you consider what they could have said here. They could have said, we are sitting on a powder keg. This crowd is fickle. The whole situation is volatile. Some people are hailing him as the prophet like Moses. Others think he is the Christ. If we make the wrong move, we could have a riot on our hands. We actually did you a favor, you Pharisees, by not bringing him in, by not arresting him publicly in front of the crowds. They they could have said that, and that probably would have been true. But notice they didn't say that. They didn't try to cover for themselves or give a practical explanation. They simply said this. No one ever spoke like this man. And here is another irony for us. D.A. Carson points out that in the Greek, their answer is literally, no man, no human being has ever spoken like this. And this irony, of course, as John's readers would know, is that Jesus is no mere man. Yes, he is fully human, he is fully man, but as John has shown us in his prologue, he is more than that. Jesus is the Word made flesh, the Logos, God the Son incarnate. And so the guards here spoke better than they knew. No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees then respond with three accusations. One aimed at the guards, the other two aimed at the crowds. And I think John is again intending for us to pick up on the ironies here. For all of these accusations that the Pharisees make to others really apply to themselves. First accusation aimed at the officers, verse 47. The Pharisees answered, Have you also been deceived? These officers had heard Jesus teaching, preaching, and they had been impressed. Something had struck them as being unique about this man. Something is special in this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Something different. No one ever spoke like this man. They have seen something here. They have been impressed by his wisdom or his eloquence or the authority with which he spoke. Now, this is still a far cry from a profession of faith. Uh, from these officers, but they're on to something. They they have seen something here. No one ever spoke like this man. Now the Pharisees, on the other hand, they too have heard Jesus teaching. 
And they have concluded what? That he is an imposter. That he is a false teacher. Someone not to be trusted or listened to or given a hearing. Now just consider, zoom out for a second, look at the situation uh, from God's perspective, from an eternal perspective. God the Son came into his own creation and taught his people. Right, the officers were impressed. They saw there is, there is something about this man, something different. While the Pharisees saw nothing special. Who truly had been deceived? They ask, have you also been deceived? You, along with the crowds, been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Now here is the condescending, sneering accusation of those who seem to view themselves as the elite. Have you been deceived? Have you also believed this imposter? He has not deceived any of the real thinkers, any of the respectable class, the educated ones, the authorities, and the Pharisees. There's actually more irony in this statement, for in a moment, Nicodemus, one of their own number, is about to step forward on Jesus' behalf. And we're told later in John, in fact, that many of the authorities believed in him. John 12, 42. Now verse 49, we get the second two accusations. But this crowd who does not know the law is accursed. All right, so the first accusation aimed at the crowd is that they do not know the law. Again, the Pharisees consider themselves and were considered by others to be the authorities on the law. Right? They were the ones who would give the authoritative interpretations. They are the educated ones. Right? The only reason this rabble, right, these people of the land, are following after Jesus is because they don't know the law. For clearly, if they truly knew the law, they would be agreeing with us. Right? That, that Jesus is a lawbreaker. They would join us in rejecting Jesus. And I think once again, John presents this to us so that we may see the irony here. Because once again, in these debates between Jesus and the Jews, whose side is Moses on? Whose side is the law actually on? Who is the true lawkeeper and who has clearly missed it? Remember again what we've seen from Jesus over the last few chapters. Jesus says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to him. Right? Everyone who has learned and heard from the Father comes to him. He says to the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. A little later, Jesus says that Moses will be the one who accuses them before the Father. Right? If you believed Moses, you would believe me. 
Jesus says, for he wrote of me. Now the law of God reflects God's will for his creatures. God's law reflects his own nature and character. Well, consider again, who is Jesus? He is God the Son incarnate. The law is his law. Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, right? Jesus is God. It therefore, the law therefore reflects Jesus's nature and character. He is the fullest embodiment of law keeping that the world has ever known. He is the only sinless man and perfect Torah keeper ever to walk this earth. So see again the sad irony of this statement from the Pharisees. They say, this crowd, this rabble, these people of the land, being all impressed with Jesus, following him, the only reason they're following him, the Pharisees say, is because they don't know the law. Tragically, the Pharisees have things completely upside down. Their words fall upon their own heads. The reality is, they are the ones who did not know the law. If they knew the law, if they'd understood the heart of what God was driving at, if they had known the God who gave that law and were truly seeking to do his will, they would have received Jesus. For they would have seen in his character and nature those same principles revealed through the law of God. Those things they had been striving to conform their lives to. If they had really believed Moses, they would believe Jesus. For Moses wrote of Jesus. John 5, 46. Now the last accusation the second one aimed at the crowd, is that the crowd is under a curse. But this crowd who does not know the law is accursed. They condemn the entire crowd with this sweeping accusation. They don't know the law. They are just under a curse. They are of no account. They are worthy only of contempt and perdition. Right? This cursed crowd doesn't know the law. And in this statement, we see the disgust and arrogance of the Pharisees coming through astonishingly clearly. Now, Charles Ellicott and other commentators have noted that the writings of the rabbis at this time are full of contempt, hatred for the uneducated. Uh, They referred to them derisively as Amharetz, uh, which means the people of the land, right? And that was an insult. In contrast, the educated people, those who had been instructed in the law, uh, were Am Kadesh, the holy people. We see this error in the Pharisees. If you are in a position to teach others, as the Pharisees were, you must not show contempt 
for those you are assigned to teach. The attitude of the Pharisees toward the common people shows again that they had radically missed the point of God's law. What is the summary of the law of God? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. Right, on these two commandments hangs all the law and the prophets. The theological education of the Pharisees, right, their instruction in this law, which should lead to love for God and neighbor, did not seem to instill much love for either. And I think there's a lesson for us in, in this. We are a church that places great emphasis on theology and doctrine, I know many of you are here for this very reason. Uh, you are seeking meat and not just spiritual milk, and that is commendable. However, a church like ours, I believe, is likely more prone to this temptation than others. And that is namely, to view ourselves as theologically superior, and then to look down on others. Much like the Pharisees, our temptation can be to begin to view ourselves as the elites, right? Over against the rabble, the common people who don't know their Bibles, who have never studied any theology. Brothers and sisters, let us never forget what our Lord taught us about who the true elites are in the kingdom of heaven. Mark 10, 43, Jesus said, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the true elites, if we can use that word, the true elites in the kingdom of God are those who are most like Christ. Our study of scripture and theology is not intended to puff us up in knowledge. It is not a bat with which to beat others over the head and so to win arguments. But rather, as we often say, our theology must lead to doxology, right? worship ascribing praise to God. Our orthodoxy must lead to orthopraxy, that is, our right doctrine must lead to right practice. If our study of scripture and orthology makes us graceless, arrogant, and conceited toward others, then we have followed in the error of the Pharisees and have misunderstood and misapplied the scriptures and the doctrines we're studying. As Jonathan Edwards points out, to be truly advanced in grace, or to be a truly eminent saint, as he puts it, is to be humble and not prideful. Why? Well, for to be truly advanced in grace is to have a clearer sight of God than others. And the clearer your sight of God, 
the more clearly you will see how far short you still fall compared to what God deserves from you. True spiritual maturity, therefore, produces humility and not pride. As Edwards puts it, all true spiritual knowledge is such that the more a person has of it, the more he is sensible of his own ignorance. Right? The more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. The better you see God, the clearer you see how far short you still fall. Right? And so the more you truly see of him, the more you will be humbled. The more you see of him, the more you will see that he is glorious. The more you see of him, the more you will realize what he truly deserves from you. And then you will see how far you still fall short, even in your best moments. And so a true sign of advancing in grace is to be advancing in humility. All theology and doctrine all study of scripture, rightly applied and understood, will make you more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. In a word, it will make you more like Christ. The Pharisees did not show the love for people, the right understanding and application of God's law would instill. As they said, verse 49, but this crowd who does not know the law is accursed. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. We are reintroduced to Nicodemus. Uh, he was a Pharisee, as it says, he was one of them. And you may remember he had come to Jesus by night, and it, it was Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus where we had the dialogue about the new birth in John chapter 3. The most famous, or used to be the most famous Bible verse, John 3.16, is part of this discussion with Nicodemus. Now, this now is the second time we see him, but not the last in John. And he here raises a point in defense of Christ. All right, so the Pharisees at this point are already seeking to kill Jesus. Uh, we've seen that a few times. And they have now sent officers to arrest him. And his colleagues, the Pharisees, have just been ranting about how this cursed crowd doesn't know the law. <laughs> so Nicodemus boldly asks, are we following the law? Doesn't the law require that we give everyone a fair hearing? God's law does, in fact, require that every matter be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15 For justice to be done, you have to establish every single charge, and God's law has numerous safeguards in place to ensure that the innocent will not be wrongly condemned. 
And so in the face of all their bluster about the law, Nicodemus asks, are we following the law? As people often do who are backed into a corner, they replied with an insult. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. All right, so sidestepping the force of this question, the Pharisees do what people do in their corner. They resorted to insults. All right, their question amounts to this. Are you part of the rabble as well? Are you of this inferior stock? Is that why you are defending this man who is clearly a false teacher? No prophet arises from Galilee, and even this was inaccurate. Now, the prophets Jonah and Nahum both hailed from this re- region. And so their frustration in the moment seems to have made them lash out with whatever they thought would silence their opposition. Right? Where the argument failed, they replied with contempt. You don't agree with us? You must be from Galilee. Right? They've, as they've been doing. Right? You're all deceived. You don't know the law. You're all just accursed. And the tragic irony here our final irony for this morning and the point with which we'll close is that the reality is is that it was the Pharisees here who were truly accursed. Not because they were especially wicked, but rather because ultimately all who reject the Savior will remain under the curse. All mankind, due to their sin, is under the curse of sin and death. This whole creation is fallen. Disease, illness, pestilences, death, none of this was part of God's original design. As Paul puts it in Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And we are all under this curse of death. We are born in sin. We are born with a fallen, sinful nature. And every last one of us then commits our own sin as well. The result of all of this is that we are under the curse. We will all face death, and after death will come the judgment. We will all stand before Christ our judge. And it's fascinating in Acts 17. All right, it even links the resurrection to being proof that Jesus will be the judge of the world. It says this, Acts 17, 31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And here now we circle back around to the point we made earlier. What you conclude about Jesus and what you then do with that knowledge is perhaps the most important question you will ever ask. It will have eternal consequences, and here's why. All mankind is cursed. We have sinned against God and are deserving of God's wrath. Right, This common perception that good people go to heaven 
is fundamentally flawed for this one big reason. Nobody is good enough to earn their way into heaven. God does not grade on a curve. It's not enough for us to simply be able to point to some people whom we consider worse than we are. God's standard is his holy law. The question is not even, do your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? Uh, The question is simply this, are you righteous or are you a sinner? James 2 verse 10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Right, if you keep all Ten Commandments except one, are you not still a commandment breaker? If you keep all of God's laws except one, are you not still a law breaker? If you only committed one sin, are you not still a sinner? We see nobody is good enough to earn their way into heaven. Scripture testifies about us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So then what hope is there? How can sinners like you and me, who have been condemned by Scripture, how can sinners be made right with God? This is where the gospel comes in. The good news is that in his great love, God sent his only son to die on the cross in the place of sinners, taking the penalty they deserved for their sin. He then rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords and offers a royal pardon to all who will turn to him in repentance and faith. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so here we see the tragic irony in this statement from the Pharisees. This crowd who was interested in Jesus was on the right track. At the very least, they were in the right ballpark. The Pharisees dismissed the crowd as being accursed because they were not rejecting Jesus. The Pharisees said, crowd, you are accursed because you are interested in Jesus. When, in fact, the only way to escape the curse is to accept Jesus. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The Pharisees declared a curse to be upon those who were interested in the one curse bearer, the one who could free them from the curse. By rejecting Jesus, they were rejecting their only chance of escaping the curse themselves. What you believe about Jesus and what you do with that belief will have eternal significance. Why? Because he is your judge. And if you will have him, he will be your savior. So do not be deceived about who Christ is. He is more 
than just another prophet. He is the greatest prophet. He is our great high priest, and he is our eternal king who has received an everlasting dominion. He is the Messiah, and he came to do for his people what we could not do for ourselves. He took the curse of our law-breaking upon himself. He kept God's law perfectly, fulfilling all that God requires of man. Those who despair of self-righteousness and cast themselves wholly upon the mercy of God in Christ will find him to be a perfect Savior. If you have not, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And if you have committed your life to him, continue to walk in humble obedience to our Lord. Amen.